Palm Sunday, is more accurately known as Passion Sunday or Palm slash Passion Sunday. There is traditionally an entrance procession at which the text of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is read as we did this morning. This opening is known as the Liturgy of the Palms. The service itself would be called the Liturgy of the Passion. And you probably noticed our Old Testament and New Testament lessons today are taken from the Liturgy of the Passion. They are readings, both of them, about Jesus' suffering unto death. And then traditionally there would be a gospel lesson. And here, the whole church would stand and read the whole, the total account of Jesus' passion. All of it. In Matthew's gospel, that would be 128 verses. So although the gospel lesson was long this morning, it was an abbreviated reading. Abbreviated reading of the passion account. Now, it's a remarkable thing that we have these passion narratives. For there were thousands and thousands of deaths by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans across a long period of time, and we know virtually nothing about any of the other victims. But this one, this has become, in the words of the British writer Malcolm Muggeridge, manifestly the most famous death in history. No other death, he says, has aroused one one-hundredth part of the interest or been remembered with one one-hundredth part of the intensity and concern. And the church does this. She remembers, this is what Palm Sunday is about, remembering with intensity and concern so as to not forget the full extent of our Lord's suffering for us which follows this strange entrance into Jerusalem. So that is why the church puts the reading of the Passion here, today, on Palm slash Passion Sunday, so that at the beginning of the week, we know how the week ends. We are braced for what is to come. And so it's a vivid reminder to us that the palms and the palm-waving and the sort of light air of festivity that accompanies it, the palms and the passion cannot be separated. And historically, they have not been separated. And so we have, in the liturgy of the passion, a reminder of what it means to follow the one on the donkey. And so, today we're going to look at the suffering and death, the passion of Jesus, from Matthew's Gospel, from the reading we just had. And we'll make four points. They should be there on your insert. They're called Innocent, Humiliated, Forsaken, and Vindicated. Innocent, Humiliated, Forsaken, and Vindicated. So first, Innocent. Innocent. The evening before this, right before our text, Thursday evening, Jesus had been arrested And he had been condemned to death unjustly in a trial presided over by the Jewish authorities. It is now Friday morning. And they want now a Roman court headed by Pilate to ratify their verdict. And to do this, they convert what was a blasphemy charge against Christ in the Jewish court into a political charge, the charge of sedition, in the Roman court. 
So Pilate, the governor, asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This is the underlying thread, the underlying issue throughout. Is the alleged king a threat to Pilate and a threat to Rome? And Jesus, in his usual, or at least his oft-repaired-to, cryptic way, says, you have said so. Meaning something like, yes, I'm a king, but not in the way, not in the mode that you think of kings. So then the chief priests and the elders, these are the witnesses against him, they accuse Jesus, and he gives them no answer at all. He knows the trial is a circus. Besides, these witnesses have already condemned him in the previous night. But Pilate asks, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? Where's your defense attorney, in other words? And the text tells us, Jesus makes no reply, not even, the text says, to a single charge. And that this caused great amazement to Pilate, the governor. Right? The silence here is unquestionably a majestic silence. Right? This is royal silence, kingly silence, before the puny court of lesser kings. Jesus' silence is a silence which refuses to consent. It's a silence which is like thunder. Thunder signaling the end of Pilate's power. It's a silence which is a form of contempt. In the words of one church father, he despises the charges by not responding to them. It's also a silence in fulfillment of prophecy. The silence of the spotless Lamb of God. Isaiah 53 speaks of this silence From long ago, the text in Isaiah says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This is the silence of the lamb, the silence of the one who is spotless and innocent. The text then proceeds to this Passover custom of releasing a prisoner to the crowd. And Pilate asks him, who shall it be? Jesus or Barabbas? Jesus, he says, who is called the Messiah. Notice that. Pilate knows there are some kind of royal claims swirling around Jesus. And already, we can see that Pilate glimpses the innocence of the one who is before him. His wife comes to him, and she sort of confirms Pilate's hunch. She's been troubled by a dream, and she says, have nothing to do with this innocent man. And her advice, of course, is ignored. Pilate is both vicious, but he is a coward at the same time. He capitulates to the crowd. The crowd demands Barabbas be released, right? And they cry out for Jesus in this kind of bloodlust, crucify him, crucify him, meaning subject him to this Roman 
form of state torture reserved for insurrectionists and criminals, enemies of the state. Pilate still has a bad conscience about it. Why, he says, what crime has he committed? And and then he sees this riot's about to start. You get the feeling that Pilate is trying to find a way to vindicate Jesus. But the crowd's against him. And when he sees this riot about to start, he takes water, he washes his hands, and he says, I am innocent, same word his wife used, of this man's blood. Nevertheless, the release is made. Jesus for Barabbas. The guilty criminal goes free. The innocent one bears the punishment in his place. It's a very vivid picture of what we call substitution. The substitution or the exchange made with the Barabbas in all of us. We walk free in the righteousness of Christ. He bears our guilt, our sin, our shame, the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty. This is at the heart of the Christian gospel. It's what John Calvin called the glorious exchange. We see it here in the way Barabbas is set free and Jesus is condemned. Or as one of our great hymns puts it, What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve your place. It is simply impossible, though it has been tried a lot in the 20th century, to just evacuate the idea of substitution from Christ's life and atoning work. It is basic. And it is our great, great joy and hope. One has substituted himself for us. So Pilate has him flogged. This is a beating with a bone-studded whip. And it could be so severe that the blood loss could cause the criminal or the prisoner to die. He has him flogged. He hands him over to be crucified. That's innocence. The next point is humiliation. This is our second point, humiliation. There's historical evidence that the Roman soldiers would, at the time of the spring festival... Dress up a prisoner as king. Pay mock honor to this king. Grant the king all his wishes. And then scourge him and then kill him. It's known as the king's game. And it's that king's game that they play with the already battered and bleeding and flogged Jesus. A whole company of soldiers is present. Which we think can be between about 120 to 200 soldiers. He is stripped. He put, they put a scarlet robe on him which is probably a red Roman soldier's coat, possibly a cheap imitation of the royal purple. And they twist a crown of thorns for his head. His sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns its only crown. A staff is put into his right hand, And they kneel and they mock him. Instead of hail Caesar, it's hail king of the Jews. Unaware of the irony of their actions. Unaware that as he was royal in his innocence, so he is royal in his humiliation. They spit on him. 
They strike him with his staff, this staff again and again and again. He is the suffering servant, the humiliated one of Isaiah 50. We heard this in the Old Testament lesson. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And so he's led away to crucifixion. He's apparently so weak at this point that one Simon of Cyrene is enlisted and forced to carry Jesus' cross. A job, by the way, that disciples should be doing because taking up one's cross really means participation in the master's cross. But the disciples are not present. So they, they enlist Simon. They crucify Jesus, the text says. As cruel and sadistic a death as can be imagined. Lacerated, nailed in agony. A naked, bloody, public spectacle. And what do the soldiers do? They're callous. They've seen plenty of these. They divide up his clothes by lots. And the charge against him, again, ironically true, is placed over his head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is a new form of kingship. Triumph and weakness. Majesty and glory in humiliation. This is the subversion of all this worldly notions of power. The text tells us that the two criminals crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Those who passed by also, the text says, hurled insults at him. Literally, the text there means they blasphemed. Passerbys, just random people, not particularly tightly connected to the story, just blaspheming. They become the mouthpieces of Satan's final temptation to our Lord. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the text says, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others. Let him save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. Again, the irony of these taunts is lost on the mockers. He is, Jesus is rebuilding the temple around his crucified body. He saves others precisely because he refuses to come down off the cross. Jesus has now been humiliated in a manner that's universal. Roman power brokers, Jewish religious leaders, soldiers, random passerbys, the mob, guilty criminals... He dies at the hand of state power and religious law keepers and the democratic masses, misunderstood, mocked, and mauled, ridiculed and shamed from the top of the social order to the bottom. As one New Testament scholar put it, those of us who value our dignity too much to live with unjust criticisms and the world's hatred must seek a different Messiah to follow. We value our dignity too much to endure criticism and hatred. We're going to need a different Messiah. 
The third point here, and this is really the culmination of the humiliation, the third point is forsaken. In verse 45, three hours of darkness come over the land. This evokes the three-day plague of darkness on the land of Egypt before the Passover. It's ominous, right? It's a sign of the gathering of sin, the gathering of the powers, the powers of death itself. It's a sign of the cosmic significance of the one hanging there. And toward the end of this darkness, Jesus, at the very brink of death, cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the most awful, the most mysterious, and strangely the most comforting cry ever uttered in human flesh. Right? The my God part, my God, my God, indicates that our Lord remains faithful. He owns God as his God. He keeps the covenant in the depths of his agony. The why have you forsaken me part, the church has meditated on and wondered about and argued about and probed into for, de- for millennia. Whatever we might want to say about it theologically, it surely means this. It means that Jesus has been down to the bottom of your despair, to the depths of your misery, that he bears your own God-forsakenness, your own darkness and doubt, and your own sense of abandonment and suffering. It means he is at the bottom of our misery. It means he's been cut off and made a curse and the bearer of the justice of God made to descend into hell itself that we might not be cut off and accursed. He was forsaken so that we who are God forsakers by nature might not be forsaken, but rather be gathered as forgiven children into the Father's house. Regal in his innocence, regal in his humiliation, he bears the curse as well in royal weakness. For this is the cry of conquest. It is finished. Finally, and briefly, the text gives precursors, early signs of the vindication that will come with the resurrection. The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. This indicates now that access to God the Father is now free and open to all. No longer in an earthly temple, but in the heavenly sanctuary temple of God. The earth shakes and rocks split for the new creation is arriving. And that convulses this creation. And strangely, tombs break open. And bodies of holy people are raised. And after the resurrection appear in the holy city. What is happening here is mysterious. But it is the coming resurrection of Jesus. Signified now as the beginning of the coming resurrection of the dead. The end of all things is at hand. And the centurion, who's a Gentile. And those with him. Also Gentiles. In terror, exclaim, surely he was the Son of God. Even that confession anticipates that by this death, 
This one will gather the Gentiles, even those implicated in his murder, and they will with him enter the heavenly temple now made available through the tearing of the veil. Even in death, he is a royal king, a victorious savior, already making all things new. All of this, beloved, is done through what we might call the weapon, the chariot, the throne of the cross. Reading through these passion narratives, it becomes clear. In the end, this is all done out of God in Jesus Christ's unfathomable love for sinners. It is love, not nails, which hold him to the tree. And when the church reads these narratives on Palm Sunday, with the crowds shouting hosannas, the church is intentionally fastening you to the central mystery of the cross. And we need this. We need to be fastened here. For we love the idea of Jesus dying for us. But the way of the cross taking up our own instrument of public humiliation and weakness and shame and disgrace and defeat, our own means of perpetual self-execution, we want nothing to do with that. Of filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, of always carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus, of participation in his sufferings as the path to glory. No, thank you. Let Simon the Cyrene do that. We want resurrected glory now without perpetual cruciform weakness. And yet earlier on this very journey, at the end of his life into Jerusalem, Jesus turns to the crowd and he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. He can do a lot of other things, but he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So there is a warning here, right? We can falsify the sort of festive joy of Palm Sunday by separating it from the hovering dread of Maundy Thursday and the horror and the shame of Good Friday and Palm slash Passion Sunday. The combination reminds us of that danger. Right? We are not only Barabbas walking free. We are not only Barabbas walking free. We are Simon the Cyrene summoned to follow carrying the cross ourselves. We are the crucified criminals who need the criminal within our skins crucified daily. We are all over this scene, beloved. We are Barabbas, we are Simon, we are the criminals. We are reminded that for us in this age, life-giving, resurrection power is found in conformity to Jesus in his dying. Out of that wood, that God-forsaken spectacle, we are healed, forgiven, and made to live. One scholar speaks of the fruit of the cross this way. They say, The medieval image of God's forgiveness was the flowering of the cross. 
It's a beautiful thing. They continue. The cross is the ugly sign of torture. It is the sign of humanity's ability to reject love and to do what is utterly sterile. But artists of the Middle Ages showed this cross flowering on Easter Sunday. The dead wood put out tendrils and flowers. Forgiveness makes the dead live and the ugly beautiful. That is the cross of Jesus, the King of the Jews. Count the cost of following. Remember the wood as well as the flowers. For if we suffer with him, then we shall reign with him. Amen.